The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Uh, if you'll take your copies of God's Word and if you'll turn with me to Ephesians and the fifth chapter, um, for those of you visiting with us uh, tonight and for uh, those who perhaps have been absent for a while, let me just mention to you that we have been in an overall series, and there is a little bit of method to my hopefully not over-the-top madness, and that is uh, we're in a series called Foundations from Genesis, God's Blueprint for Life. Now, here's my reason, um, and see if it kind of matches up with maybe your considerations as well. My reason is directly related to the fact that we live in a culture that is embracing a progressive secular movement, which is in reality a neo-pagan movement that is deconstructing the very foundations of the culture. Uh, whenever you hear the word progressive, whether it is progressive secularism or progressive, quote-unquote, progressive Christianity, which is, I don't believe, ultimately Christianity, although some Christians are caught up in it, um, one of the key words that you can always put to it is this word, deconstruction. That's what they do. That's what it's there to do. It is to deconstruct in order to reconstruct that which is quote-unquote secular. What does that mean? That means secular. It's really interesting to me. People will tell me, well, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. And I say, well, how in the world, how in the world can you honestly say that you, uh, that you don't believe in God when you have to use his name to define what you don't believe? Uh, that is just illogical uh, to me. And uh, the same thing's true about the people who tell me, well, I don't believe in religion. I am, I'm a secularist. Well, the same thing. Secular is a, is a word that is a download from a Latin word that means living life outside of the sacred. Again, you're appealing to the sacred to define your life out, as outside of the sacred. Uh, it doesn't deny the sacred. It just says, I'm not going to, I'm going to rebel against the sacred. Is what, and how do you do that? Well, first of all, you deconstruct that which God God has laid in the hearts and consciences of men through common grace and what has been built into society through redeeming grace. And you want to deconstruct it as an act of rebellion against God. And one of the great witnesses, now listen, this doesn't save people. People don't get saved without faith in Christ. And you can't have faith in Christ without hearing the word. So our Christian example will not save people, but hopefully it will affirm salvation. Hopefully it will attract people to hear the gospel message, and hopefully it will bring authenticity before the world. So as you see the deconstruction 
of the foundations that God has laid in the book of Genesis. The sanctity of gender, the sanctity of sexuality, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of creation, the sanctity of God, the sanctity of man, male and female. All of those things that we have been studying as 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 secular progressive secularism would seek to uh, deconstruct it. One of the great witnesses is for Christ's church to, I don't know a better language than this, to double down. We're going to go to work on this. We are going to love life. We're not only going to say no to murder, pre-born or born or end of life. We're going to actually promote life. We're not only going to say no to sexual immorality, sexual abnormality, sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion. We're not going to say just say no to that. We want to commit sexuality in its sacred gifted place in the context of marriage. We not only want to affirm uh, gender, we want to understand it and build our lives. What does it mean to act like a man? What does it mean to act like a woman in the spheres of life, singleness, marriage, widowhood, or whatever place and status and season of life you find yourself? What does it mean to be a Christian man, a Christian woman? And what does it mean to live in a world that you know bears the design of the Almighty? Here is the world that stands as a, as a testimony to the Creator. The, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day after day, night after night, their speech goes forward. And God is revealing Himself in creation. So all of those things, if we double down and discipline and disciple God's people in the disciplines of grace, the means of grace through preaching and discipleship and fellowship and worship. Uh, as those things are applied and God's people's lives begin to bear that testimony in the community, which will be moving into a death spiral of chaos. And that's why my description of what's happening is this simple phrase, that you are seeing a culture of uh, the death spiral of a culture, and that culture is a culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality, all rooted in industries of sin with profitability. That's what you're looking at. That's what you're seeing. So you can be assured whenever you make money off of industries of sin, even if they're bringing the culture into a downward spiral of, of, of uh, insanity and absurdity and lethality and immorality, when it's rooted in profitability, then the battle becomes even that much more intense. So this is my effort from the pulpit to promote it. I... I'm constantly in prayer and praying that uh, God's people would become highly motivated to know how then shall we live. That's the words of the prophet. 
The words of the prophet is, how then shall we live? In light of who God is and what God's done as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, how then shall we live? Well, these are, these are foundational pillars. That's why we're calling it foundations, God's blueprint for life. Now we've covered, uh, we've covered five of them and we're in this series right now on the sanctity of marriage and, and when I return, uh, after the, um, learning the Bible in the land of the Bible trip, uh, we're going to go to the next one, which is the sanctity of family. What does God say about family and how does family function? So here we are in this sanctity of marriage and what I have attempted to do is to build a theology of marriage. We haven't gone all that deep, but we have attempted to put the spade work into the scripture so that we looked at a theology of marriage from creation. How did God design marriage in creation? Then the theology of marriage in the fall. What did the curse of sin do to marriage? And then now the theology of marriage in, uh, in redemption. How does God, through the gospel work of discipleship, how does God bring the gospel to bear upon marriage and counteract and contradict the effects of the fall with the evidences of God's grace, which is greater than that sin, in a marital relationship. So that's what we've done. Now I want to finish this short little series on marriage by giving you today, tonight, some biblical practicalities uh, and um, in terms of how we implement this gospel marriage, this Christian marriage, which, by the way, has to be in place or should be in place to make effective the next step, which is family, which is built upon marriage. And then that then lays the step for the next thing that we'll look at, which is parenting in the family rooted in a marriage that is that is established in the context of the gospel. So the Apostle Paul, after declaring the gospel blessings for the elect in Ephesians 1 through 3, then turns to the gospel life in Ephesians 4. He does so with his with his salient introductory statement, Ephesians 4, 1. I now I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's what he calls us to do. Then he lays out for us how to put off the old man and put on the new man. Then he moves into relationships. He takes a look at um, not only our personal conduct, let him who steals steal no longer. Let him labor with his hands instead of taking, labor with your hands to give. Instead of polluting words, now speak edifying words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give you. He goes through a series of personal uh, personal discipleship in the life of the believer. And then he turns to the marriage. Having said to all of us as believers that we submit ourselves to one another, he now shows how that phrase is worked out in a marriage. How was a Christian man as a husband submit himself to his wife? How does a wife submit herself to her husband? And then he'll go on to show how parents in submission to the Lord serve the 
their uh, their children in terms of biblical parenting and how and how children in through their obedience submit themselves to their parents and so we'll work our way through that and then he'll go to labor relationships and as well but right now we're in this marriage uh, element we were there last week and I want to go back to set up these final exhortations I want to give you 10 uh, biblical best practices tonight uh, but let me remind you of where we are by going to Ephesians chapter 5 would you go there with me and take a look at that um, at, at where this text begins in verse 22 wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord now let me let me just stop right there just for a moment As the Lord calls a woman to submission in the context of marriage to her husband, that is not a call of submission to all other men. It is a call to submit to her husband, whom she has now entered into a covenant relationship. So so that's where that direction is given to us. There is also direction given to men and women as male and female in the context of the family of God. But here he is saying this call to the wife is submission, not to every man in the congregation, but submission to her own husband. And remember, submission is exemplified by the very creation of the woman, just as the man is taken from the dust of the ground because his mandate is to rule over the earth. He's taken from the dust of the earth and the origin that God uses to create him points to his mandate, that he is to subdue the earth. He is to rule over the creation of the earth and have dominion, and he is to populate and fill the earth. Then God takes from his side and creates Isha, the reflection of Ish. Ish is man, Isha is woman, and the reflection so that the two together, the woman submits, comes alongside of the man so that together they can now accomplish. It was not good for him to be alone. That was not speaking so much psychologically and relationally, but vocationally. To do the task that God had given to him, he could not do that alone. And as he named the animals, none matched the task. None was a corresponding helpmate. So now God, um, now God, as it was, applies the anesthesia, and from his side comes this uh, woman, and he then, and his role of authority in his marriage, then names her. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. I love the picture Matthew Henry gives. Uh, I like to use this picture when I talk about it, that she's not taken from his head. She's not over him, not from his feet. She's not under him, but from his side. To co- she is to a completer, the helper completer. And then I love the way Matthew Henry adds to that, that he, that it is, that the man is going to be called to nourish and cherish her from his heart that's what he is called to do is it not interesting that God brings her into existence from that which is next to his heart because she is to be a heart focus uh, in the name of the Lord as he serves the Lord the priority of his heart in the Lord 
And so the woman now is called to submit to the one from whom she comes and to be his helper, be his helper completer by fulfilling this task of submission. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So God has appointed him in a position of spiritual leadership and earthly provision and protection. So she is to come under that and alongside of his headship in response to that and um, and become the completer and the helper and the one who comes under his headship, which is to mirror the love of Christ and his headship for his bride, the church, which is his body and is himself its savior. So not that the man can save his wife from her sins, but the man will give himself to save his wife in this world. That he now is there as her protector as she comes alongside of him and under that headship. And that's how, that's why we have always in the history of Christianity that the name is changed to identify that a new family has begun and that new family has this name and she takes it as she comes alongside of him. Then he goes on to say, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, so very clearly the church submits to its head its bridegroom in everything. And so the wife is to do. This isn't 50-50. This is a man 100% committed to his wife and a woman 100% committed to her husband. Pastor, is there no limitation on this? Well, um, no and yes. No, there is no limitation in the sense that now the man and the woman in this world are fully identified together. They've left and they've cleft. They leave and they cleave. And now they become one. Therefore, all of life is seen in the context of each other. It's not you got your life and I got my life. This is all of life is in context with each other. But in obedience to the, to the husband, the husband's authority is a delegated authority. Just like a president's authority. Just like a governor's authority. It is a delegated authority. And whenever there is delegated authority, that means it's limited authority. And what limits this authority is the man cannot call his wife to do anything that is in violation of biblical truth and principles. Therefore, it's just, it's a very much the way Peter and John in the book of Acts were commanded by Jesus to preach the gospel everywhere to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. They got arrested and they let Peter and John out of jail in Jerusalem and instructed them, you are not allowed to preach the name of Jesus. Well, they went out and what'd they do? They preached the name of Jesus. And when they came back and said, we forbade you to do that. And they came back with the threats and the sword of, of authority by the government again. They were willing to bear the punishment, but they were not willing to disobey the Lord. And here is your principle. We must obey God rather than man. So whether it's in the family or whether it is uh, in the family where a husband may step beyond the word of God to give direction to his wife 
wife, she must obey God rather than man. Or if children are instructed by parents to go steal, to do this or to do that, then the child as a believer, if the child knows Christ, then they ought to even be ready. I am supposed to obey my parents, but I cannot obey if that authority is telling me to transgress the the very word of God. The same thing's true with the civil magistrates. So we, it's not, this isn't an open door. If they're telling me to do something I don't like to do, I don't have to do it because I'm a Christian. No, the only thing that limits our obedience to delegated authority of human, of human um, settings, uh, the only thing that limits it is if it is causing us to transgress the word of God itself. And, uh, and, and to, and to disobey the Lord of glory. So, uh, so here is the wife, but, but she enters in with no reservations, fully committed to her husband as he is fully committed to even lay down his life as the next text tells you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So, um, uh, so that he might present the church to himself In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, a man is to come in league and minister to his wife the way Christ, the bridegroom, has is ministering to his bride. Note the priority upon the spiritual. The man is to be a provider and a protector, but note the priority, not to the exclusion of the physical, but note the priority upon the spiritual leadership that the man is to give. Secondly, note the full commitment that he is to make to the woman. Thirdly, note that he is to put an eye to eternity, just as Christ will present his bride to eternity without spot or wrinkle. Then the man is has an eye to eternity. He is taking his wife with care and shepherding all the way to glory and wants to be an asset in her progress in the gospel that she might be presented to the Lord without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, so notice that, uh, notice how he uses this phrase, husbands in the same way are likewise. So now we're back to what the wife is supposed to do, and there's a sense where the husband's responsibilities are lining up with that. Notice it says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here is building upon the biblical marriage understanding that in marriage, one plus one does not equal two. It equals one. And if I love, if I am biblically loving myself before the Lord, then I love my wife in the same way. You don't destroy your body. You don't, um, you don't um, distort your body. You are called to take care of your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, so that you are ready to serve the Lord. Well, in the same way, you are to take care of your wife. The same kind of thoughtful, nurturing, careful love, biblical sense of love, where you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, that biblical sense of love, not that makes yourself a 
an idol, but that makes yourself an effective vessel for the Lord. Then therefore you are to so love your wife in the same way. This goes from the sacrificial love of laying down your life to the shepherding love of nurturing and cherishing your wife. That this kind of a love is not just the agape, sacrificial love, but the, but the nurturing kind of love that we are to bring. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We are one with Christ. Our wife is one with us. Therefore, we would treat her with the same thoughtfulness that we would in a sanctified treatment of our own bodies before the Lord with um, with caring for those and nourishing for it and cherishing it, not to idolatry, but to have ourselves available and ready to serve the Lord. Then he says, then he quotes Genesis 2.24, which is the foundational text for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, I wanted to ask this this morning, but I was editing the sermon as we were working our way through it. But do y'all believe that Paul actually thought Adam was a real person or just some mythical symbol fabrication to get something across to us? Or do you think he actually thought Adam was a real person? Yeah, it's pretty clear the historicity of Adam in Paul's theology. And here is, again, the affirmation of that. And that not only was Adam truly created by the God, by God as a historical figure, but what is, I'm going to do a little play on words here, wake you up. You ready? Where is the genesis of marriage? It's in Genesis. <laughs> the genesis of marriage is Genesis 2.24. God created marriage. He created the man male and female. He created marriage itself. That's why we begin with a theology of marriage from creation. Marriage, according to creation, marriage is uh, very clearly, marriage is a, uh, a covenantal relationship. Well, let me do it this way. Marriage is a monogamous, heterosexual, conjugal covenant relationship. That means it has vows and it has a sacramental sign and seal. Now, I did not say marriage was a sacrament. I said marriage is a covenant and all covenants have a sacramental sign and seal. So here we see the first marriage. It is monogamous. One man, one woman. It is heterosexual. Man, male, and female. It is conjugal. They are biologically, sexually, physically, and spiritually to be one. And so God has made them. And it is not only conjugal, it is allowed and, and, um, and, enab- and uh, allows, I'm sorry, it allows procreation. And it is intimate and sexual. It is initiated in the intimacy of sex in the marriage bed. It is recreated. It not only is, it not only is, um, 
not only do you have the initiation of marriage through the marriage bed, but you have the constant renewal of marriage, the recreating of marriage, the recreation of marriage as man and woman continue in the intimacy of their relationship with one another in the giving of each other. And then you have not only to not only the initiation of the marriage, the recreation of the marriage, but procreation from the marriage. And that sex is there for the consummation of the marriage, for the renewal of the marriage, and for reproduction within the marriage. So it is a, it is a monogamous, heterosexual, um, conjugal relationship that is covenantal and the sign and seal of the covenant is the mystery that Paul referred to, which is the intimacy of the marriage bed, which is why when I end a marriage, I say upon the consummation of this union, I pronounce you man and wife. Now, that doesn't mean legally you're not married in the sense of of this matter of consummation, but it does mean before the Lord, the design, unless sin has brought has brought the incapacities through the weakness of the flesh, that 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 is the place of the sexual relationship. It initiates, it recreates, it procreates within marriage. And so that's what God gives us in the theology of marriage. But then we have the fall, don't we? And then we have the curse of sin. In the curse of sin, that Eve is now cursed and that she becomes a predator. The Bible says in the curse of sin that your desire shall be for your husband. That's a Hebrew word that's used three times in the Old Testament. It's used in the Song of Solomon. It's used in, it's used in Genesis 3 that your desire shall be for your husband. And then right across the page in Genesis 4 that when Cain sinned against his brother, uh, I'm sorry, when Cain, um, when Cain had sinned against his brother, it was because because of his jealousy that God had accepted his worship. And then what does God say to Cain? Why is your face fallen? Why is your face fallen? Why are you depressed? Is not sin crouching at the door? That's the picture of a lion, the predator. Is not sin crouching at the door and its desire is for you? That's the, the, that you are the prey. So the curse of sin is the woman from the sin nature that, uh, that she receives from Adam, that woman, then that women un, uh, unaffected by the Holy Spirit in common grace or redeeming grace are born with the, the predatorial desire for their husband's position and their husband's status. And so, um, and then what about man? Well, the next phrase in Genesis chapter three, uh, in Genesis chapter three is that yet he shall rule over you. And the word rule in Hebrew in the noun form is tyrant. So if you translate it from the noun form tyrant, then rule would be translated as a verb will tyrannize you. So what do men do? Men, un, unaffected by grace, their natural fallen, their fallen response to the woman and because of the curse of sin is that 
in response to the predatorial behavior, then the man responds with tyranny, to tyrannize, either by ignoring and isolating with abandonment or by intimidation verbally, physically, emotionally, and however ways that he can do it. So now you see why Ephesians 5 becomes so important, don't you? So now you see why Paul brings a focus. He tells men to love their wives sacrificially and to love their wife nourishingly. So let me ask you a question. Is there anywhere in the Bible that tells women to love their husbands? Hello? Yeah. Certainly it does. Titus chapter 2. I I give you a number of them. Let me just give you one. Titus 2. Older women teach the younger women to love their husbands. But why the emphasis here? Here's what Paul is saying in his discipleship of Christians now in their marriage. You don't have to live according to the nature, the sin nature any longer. Men, you are not tyrants. You are servants and shepherds. And you bring the love of Christ whereby you're willing to lay down your life for your wife. Even as Christ loved his bride and gave himself for her. You are called to a sacrificial love. You are called to a shepherding, a shepherd's love. And what does the shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. So what are you supposed to do? Well, Jesus, who has brought us into union with us, his bride, what does he do with us? He He nourishes us. He cherishes us. What do you do with your bride? You nourish her. You cherish her. What does he do to gain his bride? He lays down his life for her. What do you do for your bride? You lay down your life for her. You're you're called to love and you're called to lead. You're called to love with a sacrificial love and a nourishing love. You're called to lead with a servant's heart. Grab the towel. Start washing feet. And you are called to, and you are called to love, uh, to, to lead not only with a servant leadership, but you're called to lead with a shepherd's leadership. And the shepherd knows his sheep and the shepherd guards the, guards the fold and the shepherd is the one that's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Do you see how the redemptive work of the gospel in a marriage attacks and removes the curse of sin functionally within the marriage? And wives, you're not predatorial. Instead of a conqueror, you're a completer. Instead of subjugation, you come alongside. This is what you're called to do, and this is your heart desire. Pastor, aren't there women that are a lot smarter than their husbands? Oh, yes. (laughs) Hello. Start right here. Uh, There's no National Honor Society cord hanging down from my high school diploma, I can tell you that. Uh, So I am fully aware of that. In fact, I couldn't help but thinking that as we are 
in this little season of receiving a new pastoral staff and as we're sending out men who have been through the mentorship here and they're going to be pastors and Westby's case, I was thinking as I looked at Jason and I was thinking as I looked at Westby, I have the privilege to meet with 14 of these men every month. And uh, as I see the Lord developing them and working with them, I notice that every single one of them have a very solid assurance to me that they're called to the ministry. They all married up. Every one of them. Whether it's Elizabeth with Jason, Mallory with uh, Westby, or otherwise. But let me tell you something else. Yeah, they married up. But their wives never put them down. They lift them up. They become completers. They put a rein on the, on the sharp wit of a tongue that wounds a man. And they fill the heart with a desire together. Let's move forward. And I'll use my gifts for Christ in your life. Not to overshadow you, but to complete you. I won't use, and I see this so many times in employment circles, where you have someone in a position of authority and someone who is smarter than them in a certain area. And instead of seeing the the vacuum in the, um, their employer's life as an opportunity to come alongside and enhance them, it becomes an occasion to undermine them. Wives don't do that in a Christian home. They come alongside of them and they build them up in and through the Lord. And so I'm just going to enumerate some best practices biblically for you. I've only got a few minutes to do it, so I'm going to do that. And uh, But by the way, I want to establish this is biblical for me to do biblical best practices. Because here are all these texts on, Christ- on marriage, creation, marriage in the fall, and marriage in redemption because of the gospel. And then here's another passage that affirms all of that, but at the same time starts giving some best practices. And it comes from Peter. And by the way, Peter can speak because the Bible tells us that Peter was married. And the Bible not only tells us that Peter was married, but according to the Apostle Paul, Peter, Peter's wife traveled with him in the ministry quite often. And uh, as, as Paul affirms that. So look at what Mr. Peter says about marriage from a gospel framework and a biblical world in life view. Go to 1 Peter and go to chapter 2 with me. Notice Peter kind of does something similar to Paul. He starts talking about our relationships in various spheres of society. And he tells us in, in verse, um, in verse uh, 10 to be subject to those who are in governmental authority over us in 1 Peter 2 uh, verse uh, uh I'm sorry, verse 13. And then in verse 16, he talks about the employment, uh, the most common employment of that day, which was the servant master. And he deals with how we relate to one another as servants and masters, according to the gospel in chapter 2 and verse 18. And, uh, and he lays out how we are to live with one another. And then you get to chapter 3. Look what he says. Having looked at the relationships and submission and talking about it, he then goes to marriage. Likewise, what I've been talking about, this submission. Likewise, wives, be subject, again, note the limitation, 
not any man, not every man, but to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you see how he's giving best practices? He's not only giving the biblical principle of subjection, but then he says, now some of you are married to men who either don't know the Lord or are not walking with the Lord. Do you realize that your wordless completion of them, your wordless coming alongside of them, your wordless submission is the maybe the most powerful instrument you have to win them to the word? Don't worry, the pastor and the elders will be preaching at them. You tee it up with your life secure in Christ. I didn't know she was going to be in here until I realized it a couple of weeks ago, but I'll tell you right now, when I first met Cindy, I was not a believer. I was empty in my sin. I'd come pretty much to the end of everything. And I remember... Besides attracted to her, the very first thing I said to my mother when I got home is she has stability. There is something secure in her. She is not easily shaken. When wives display that, even when they have a husband that doesn't know the Lord. That's why Paul will tell you in 1 Corinthians... If your husband doesn't know the Lord, that's not grounds for divorce. Or if your wife doesn't know the Lord, that's not grounds for divorce. Do you not know your presence sets them apart? Your covenant children are set apart. Well, just like your presence sets your covenant children apart, who are holy, set apart, so you bring the testimony and the set-apartness of the Holy Spirit in their life. And Peter puts legs on this by saying, your submission is that which can win them. Best practices. What do I do with an unbelieving husband or a husband that's not walking with the Lord? It's not all you do. There's other other things to do. Prayer, exhortation, all kinds of things. But submission is an instrument that wins them to the word. Look at what he says, so that they, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their life when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Does that ring a bell? What was the last thing that Paul said to the woman? Not only submit, but honor and respect your husband. So here's best practices in the setting of an unbelieving husband or a wayward husband. Do not let your adorning, and that gets very practical. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry are the clothing you wear. Now, he's not telling you to go dress in a sackcloth. What he is saying is your focus in your uh, in your uh, in your presentation of yourself in life is not upon the jewelry, not upon the adornment, not upon the cosmetics of life. You, what you focus upon is what? Not the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's not forbidding jewelry. He's not forbidding combing your hair, braiding your hair. He's not forbidding clothes. What he is doing is telling you this. Here's your focus. Let your adorning, 
that which you're giving attention to. Here is your focus for beauty that lasts. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then he says, go find some examples. Go find some models. Go back to the Old Testament. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do what is right and do not, here, here it is, fearlessly. Because your confidence is not in your husband. It is in the Lord. Fearlessly do not fear anything that is frightening. Now I know you're, you're just sitting there saying, okay, great example. Sarah and Abraham. I'm, I don't think I'm going home to Abraham. Well, thank God. Because two different times Abraham was ready to lie at the cost of his wife's life to rulers in Egypt and rulers of God's enemies. And he took a half-truth and turned it into a whole life. Just tell them you're my sister. Because if they know you're my wife, they may kill me to get you. Look at this self, not self-sacrificing husband. But notice how Sarah refused to be frightened. And then the Lord got a hold of Abraham through a couple of kings who came and gave him the riot act. You almost caused me to sin against your God. And that could have been the death of me because you lied. And thus she was her submission and coming alongside, even though he was lying. That submission became the occasion for his repentance. Likewise, now he turns to the husband. He said, best practices for husband. Husbands, likewise, husbands, you live with your wives. What? In an understanding way. Guys, you can't live with your wife in an understanding way when you come in, park the car, pick up a newspaper, read it, go play on the computer, and then go to bed. That isn't going to work. You can't have an understanding relationship without time invested and communication invested. And so he calls them to live with their wives in an understanding way. And what? Show her honor. Show her the honor that is to be hers. Show her respect. Show her honor and respect that is due to her as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now notice he is, he is not speaking. He is not speaking that the wife is inferior in the sense of status before God because he says we're joint heirs. We're equal heirs. So he's affirming our equality before God, but he's also recognizing science, creation science. God made her from you. And God made you to take care of her. That's what he has called you to do. And you won't take care of that which you do not respect and honor. So you honor her and respect her. God made her for you to care for and to protect and to provide. And God calls you to that task. Therefore, honor her. And respect her. 
So, here we are. I hope you can write fast, because here they come. Best, some best practices for you. You ready? Number one, number one. Um, it is not your responsibility to make sure your spouse does their responsibility. Men, your responsibility is to love sacrificially and nourishingly and cherishingly and lead as a servant. Your job is not to make your wife submit. That's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's work. That's the word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And that's the work of discipleship. That's not your work. Your work is to love and lead her. Wives, your work is to submit and to come alongside of. Uh, it is not to become, uh, it is not to instruct him in the sense of, of um, shaming him uh, with words of, uh, with words that undermine or words that embarrass. So our responsibility is to do what the Lord calls us to do. Our responsibility is not to make our, our spouse do what they are supposed to do. That's in the hands of the Lord. Number two, number, number two, remember our affections are for our own wives. Our devotion is for our own wives. A wife's honor, a, a wife's marital honor and respect and submission is to her own husband, not to other men. Men, listen to Paul. It is not good for a man to, and the word is sensual, sexual. It is not good for a man to touch a woman. Only have your own wife. Wives, it is not appropriate and right for you to enter into relationships with other men that go to the depths of re conversation and relationships that are reserved only for your husband. So our, our fulfillment is to our own husband and to our own wife. Number three, prioritize the spiritual while always addressing the physical. Prioritize the spiritual. Men, we want to get our wives to the finish line. And it doesn't matter how many square feet there are in the house when we get there. We want them to grow in grace all the way there. We certainly want to provide physically. We certainly want to protect physically. And then we certainly want to give ourselves to that. But remember... The priority upon the spiritual while addressing, while still addressing the physical. Number four, I know you're going to, <laughs> I know you're going to uh, hear this and you're going to say, well, what else do you think a preacher is going to say? Well, yeah, I'll take that, but it's not to, it's not self-serving. It's because I believe this, I disciple it, I've been discipled, and I want to say it to you. Prioritize the Lord's Day. It's foundational for every other day. And I'll go ahead. Prioritize the morning and evening sacrifices of praise. Bring the Lord's Day in its origin, in the morning hours, its conclusion in the gloaming hours. Make that the Lord's day and bracket it with worship 
and make the Lord's day the Lord's day, not the Lord's 70 minutes when convenient. Everyone I've ever met that was effective in growing as a Christian had a functionally high view of the Lord's day. And everyone I've seen that have been able to hand off, not everyone, many that I have seen able to hand off to their children. And that it has been when they have raised their family in the context of the Lord's Day, but it began in their marriage. That the Lord's Day is sacred and sanctified. Number five. Number five. So singles... I'm talking a little bit to you right now. And remember, I love you and I hope you still love me. Loving courtships. I'm sorry. Courtships should be... Wait a minute. Let me say this over. Courtships can and many times should be long. Engagements should always be short. Once you've made a commitment, you are drawn toward the full expression of your love. Keep that period of time where you have to exercise discipline as short as possible. Now, I just went half and half. I courted her for three months and struck while the iron was hot. And, uh, and then we had a, we had a three month engagement. So don't necessarily look to me. So, uh, but I will tell you, what, the courtship needs to be as long as necessary as the courtship. Long courtships are fine, but engagements should be focused and um, and restrained and shorter. I wished I could tell you how many young people I have discipled who loved Jesus and had a long engagement. And faltered in the midst of it. And part of the issue was once you've made that commitment and begin to move toward that marriage, everything pulls you toward each other. And therefore, it needs to be a short engagement for the sake of discipline and purity. Number five. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was uh, that was number five. Uh, number six. Um, well, I'm sorry. I've already, I've already said number six. Not only prioritize the Lord's Day, prioritize, prioritize Lord's Day morning and evening worship. Prioritize Lord's Day morning and evening worship as a couple. Sorry. I just don't believe watching TV matches being together in worship. Sorry. I don't believe a movie matches, uh, being together and giving praise to God. Sorry. I don't believe, um, I don't believe just sitting around the house and, um, and being distracted and calling that rest, uh, matches the rest that we get in the context of worship on the Lord's Day. I do believe that Lord's Day worship is invigorating. It sets you up for the six days of work as you rest in the Lord. Folks, I pray for you every Saturday night that as you come on the Lord's Day, morning and evening, as you come, you will sense the Sabbath rest in worship, that you would sense it. Because you've got six days to work for Jesus. Now you rest in his work in you. In worship and praise and honor of the Lord. 
Uh, Number seven, prioritize a daily time with your spouse in prayer and the word. And men, please take the lead. A daily time in prayer and the word. I don't know what time it works for you. For me and Cindy, our time with a passage of scripture and prayer is in the morning before I leave. So prioritize a time in the word and a time in prayer together. I'm not talking about family worship. I'm talking about with your spouse. Family worship is something else and we'll get to that. This is prioritize some time where you and and your wife or you and your husband that you can enjoy and encourage one another in a time of prayer and the word together. Intercessory prayer and the word together. Number eight, get some mentors in your life. Just like I believe every Christian ought to have mentors in their life, I think you'd get one to three mentors in your life, which means get engaged in Christ's church as a couple. No, don't play drive-by church. Get engaged because there is where you'll find. Now, many of you are got a hand up because your parents are excellent mentors for you. And, uh, and praise the Lord that you can take advantage of that. But even if you've got that, get outside of that. You know, one of the things I love about Briarwood is the diversity, almost even, of age and season of life. Uh, burgeoning young couples, older couples, in-between couples. As they, I go around to the Sunday school communities and see that, take advantage of that. If you're in a single place, we talked about getting that older man or older woman or two or three of them to mentor you. But in marriage, get couples Older couples, preferably. Older couples that are able to mentor you. And then you mentor those who are coming behind you. Both of those things are going to bless you. You're going to gain from your mentors. And you're going to gain when you mentor. That you can work that into your small group. I don't know how you're going to do it. But take advantage of having those who can mentor you. That's why he said, remember, ladies, remember the holy women. You've got mentors. Older women to younger women. Older men to younger men. And then older couples to young couples. That you find that and you get that. I'm very thankful. We've got, um, we've got some communities. We even got one developing where singles and couples can be together so that they can be mentored by them. But also in there can be this cross-generational. Now listen, listen, as a church, we've got to learn how to do this. Don't, we can, don't need to be knee-jerk on this thing. Yes, people need ministries in their status of life and their season of life. But you can do that and still have that cross-pollination across seasons of life. It's not an either-or. Both ought to be available for us. And then you take advantage of that to get the mentors in your life. There's one couple that does lay counseling for young couples. You know what I love? Is three months later, they take them out to find out how they're doing. Another three months later, they take them out to how they're doing. And for some, it has gone on into a relationship of mentoring. Those kind of things can take place, and, that, and I believe ought to. Number nine, num- oh my God, here they are. Number nine, get a date night. Ours is Thursday night. Get a date night and keep a date night. Pastor, we're poor, can't afford babysitters. Aha! 
Well, you're in a Sunday school community. Guess what? You got some more poor young couples around you. So you, you say to one, you take Thursday, we'll take Friday. We'll keep your kids Thursday. Hope they're still alive when you get in. And then you take our kids on Friday. We'll hope they're still alive when we get in. That's the way Cindy and I did it for 15 to 20 years. And uh, so we, we really enjoy that. By the way, that may be a reason you want to do your spiritual gifts in the youth group, because it's amazing. You pour your life into young people and uh, they're well, how can I help you? Oh, glad you asked. Friday night, we got a date night. Maybe you could help us out. So there is. But have that date night and then enjoy it and work on it and uh, and and move forward with it. And then finally, um, uh, finally, uh, what I would say is remember what our marriage, always remember and talk together about what our marriage is ultimately showing. Not only the power of the gospel, that we don't have to live according to the fall. But we can live in such a way that people are drawn to why marriage exists ultimately. There was a man who left his father and his mother to cleave to his bride. And that's our Savior. And nothing will separate his bride from him and his love. The fidelity of Christ's bride to their Savior, as we honor him and respect it, can be mirrored in a wife. And the sacrificial, nourishing, continual faithfulness of Christ the bridegroom for his wife can be established before a watching world in our marriages. Always keep that in front of you. Our marriage, a witness to the redemptive work of Christ uh, for his bride. And may the Lord bless you as you move forward. There's a lot of things I'll be more than happy to talk with you about beyond this. But at least there's a place for you to get started. And best practices worked on the principles that we have looked at. Not all those practices did, by any means, did I come up with. I learned them from my mentors. Cindy and I learned it from our mentors. So we pass it along to you. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word tonight and to encourage one another in and through Christ. Thank you, Father, for the glorious blessing of the institution of creation, marriage, which you have established through the work of redemption, that it may show forth Christ and his bride and we may enjoy the blessings of grace that is greater than the sin that would that would uh, destroy our marriage, your grace is greater so that our marriages might be those that testify the greatness of abounding grace over sin. To the praise of Jesus, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.